Welcome to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. To learn more, please visit www.iwp.edu. Uh, good afternoon and welcome to the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. We also offer the opportunity to take a single course without having to pay an entire semester's worth of tuition cost. Um, you can also audit a course at a much less cost. Um, if you are interested in learning more about us, please feel free to speak to one of our staff at the conclusion of this event. We have two speakers today. Um, the first is Jared C. Tate, who is the founder of Digibyte, the fastest, most decentralized, and most secure UTXO blockchain in existence today. Beyond cryptocurrency, Digibyte is focused on the blockchain's many applications in furthering cybersecurity. Digibyte has pioneered several technical in innovations, including real-time difficulty adjustments, multi-algorithm mining, and DigiID, a decentralized crypt cryptographic form of identity that serves as a more secure replacement for usernames and passwords. Today, code created by Jared in the Digibyte community has been adopted by dozens of other blockchains, Prior to Digibyte, Jared studied at the U.S. Military Academy for a short time, the College of Idaho, and Utah Valley University. Our second speaker is Andrew D. Knapp, who is the CEO and founder of Vesti, as well as the co-author of Blockchain 2035. In 2018, Andrew left federal service to lead Vesti, having built the core concepts involved over several, several years living in the D.C. metro area. He is a 2013 graduate of IWP. And please join me in welcoming Jared. Thank you for that introduction. Uh, it's an honor and a pleasure to be here today at uh, IWP, a uh, very respected institution. Um, today is our very first uh, uh, book event for our upcoming book, Blockchain 2035. Uh, so I think this is uh, probably the perfect place for us to kick this off uh, in the spirit of actually what we're, uh, what we're trying to do. And what we're trying to do with this book is education and to help people understand uh, this crazy technology we call blockchain. Uh, one of the things I like to do as we, uh, you know, when I give speeches is, is kind of gauge the audience. Um, so by a show of hands, how many people in this room have ever bought or traded any sort of cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, Litecoin, Digibyte? Okay, so it looks like we have about 50-50. Um, now, out of that 50%, how many people feel confident uh, telling somebody new what a blockchain is? Okay, all right. Okay, we got, we got a couple. Okay. Uh, well, that's, uh, that's a great assessment. So hopefully today um, I'll give you kind of a, a brief introduction with some highlights uh, on why this technology matters and uh, where it's going uh, and how it's going to impact every aspect of your life by the year 2035. So, to start off with, I want to read a quote from the inventor of the internet, Sir Tim Berners-Lee. Uh, he, he gave this quote at a presentation last November. He said, humanity connected by technology on the web is functioning in a dystopian way. We have online abuse, prejudice, bias, polarization, fake news. There are lots of ways in which it is broken. So his point is that the internet as we know it today is fundamentally broken. Now, what is and how is it broken? How many people in here have ever had their identity stolen online? 
So I, I see a couple hands. I would be willing to bet every single person in this room has been the victim of identity and data breaches, uh, probably even in the last six months. Um, there's a really interesting website you can go to. It's called informationisbeautiful.net uh, that shows all the most recent data breaches uh, in existence uh, that have ever happened. And it's, it's pretty overwhelming. Almost every major service you probably ever used um, has been hacked at some point. And why are, why are we having all these vulnerabilities? Why are all these problems occurring with the internet itself? Well, if you go back and you talk to the individuals that helped create the internet, uh, it was never designed to be secure. Uh, they basically were a bunch of research institutions. Uh, they trusted each other and they basically just uh, had a phone book with IP addresses. They would call each other and look each other up. Uh, they considered including cryptography in the, the fundamental uh, infrastructure of the internet, but they decided against it because they're like, well, it's the internet. You know, we can trust everybody. And that was kind of the attitude back then. So um, without going into too much technical detail, there's, fair, there's a fair amount of technical reasons uh, why this happened. We go into that a little bit more in the book uh, with the day. Uh, we'll just keep going. So what, is, what are the costs of this insecurity? Um, in 2017, McAfee Research stated that the cost of you know, hacking and insecurity um, and centralized points of data failure was about $600 billion or 1% of global GDP. Uh, by 2019, Juniper estimates this will be over $2 trillion. So the problem is getting worse, it's not getting better. Um, and as many or some of you in this room might know, uh, it continues to get worse. Uh, in fact, last week uh, there was personal information revealed about over 4,000 good men and women in the FBI uh, that wasn't a good thing. So this is going to get worse and it's going to affect governments all over the world more and more and more. So, how do we fix this problem? Well, the cool thing is, if we actually look to nature, it gives us some like inspiration and some insights. So I want you to think for a moment and imagine all the DNA throughout your body. You have DNA in your hands, you have DNA in your hair, you have DNA you know, in your fingertips, but what if all the DNA in your entire body was just located in your fingertip? And you were you know, making some cocktails, chopping some vegetables, and you slipped and you cut that finger off. Well, you'd be in trouble. You couldn't have kids, your body, your cells couldn't regenerate. But that's how we architect our data solutions to this, this very moment. We have all these centralized databases where we contain this you know, abundance of information with, with single points of failure that you know, when it's exposed or deleted or terminated, uh, causes a lot of problems. So if you look at the data structures that exist in nature, there's some very innovative stuff that happens. And this concept of a de decentralized uh, data structure uh, is, is seen throughout, throughout nature. So this is kind of where we came up with the name for the book. You know, because uh, for those of you that are new to blockchain, um, if I can summarize the, the most basic concepts of what a blockchain is, it is decentralization and security of important information. So uh, you have these blocks, which contain, like in the case of Bitcoin or Digibyte, all the transactions that occur in a specific period of time. They're chained together using some extremely advanced cryptographic math uh, and other you know, in, in important uh, computer science. So um, this leads me into kind of the basics of a blockchain. And uh, as I am the founder and creator of the Digibyte blockchain, I've Got a lot of experience with it, so I think I'll use that as an example to kind of explain how the how the technology works. Um, so, Digibyte um, started on January tenth, two thousand fourteen, 
with the news headline, target 110 million data or target data stolen from up to 110 million customers. So this news headline was actually used to hash what we call the Genesis block, which is the first block that exists in a blockchain. So in the, pace, in the case of Bitcoin in 2009, the headline was uh, Chancellor Banks on the Brink of Failure. Um, and for those that don't know what a cryptographic hash function is, it's where you take a bunch of information, run it through some advanced mathematics, and you end up with the same result every time. So you could basically use any data to start the blockchain, but you can prove without a shadow of a doubt that it came from that exact headline. So that's what it was. And it just I, I show this to highlight that Digibyte as a blockchain has been focused on cybersecurity since day one, uh, over five years ago. Um, over the last five years, uh, we've actually uh, carried out a series of upgrades, improvements, uh, and we've actually uh, done some really cool stuff that's actually been implemented in a lot of other blockchains. Uh, so a lot of the, the code that I've personally written has actually found itself into a lot of the leading blockchains that are out there. Um, but some of the highlights here, uh, we've been focused on basically improving the speed, efficiency, and scalability of, of a blockchain. So one of the things I want to highlight here is when somebody is running what we call a, a blockchain node, so whether this is a, a Digibyte node or a blockchain node, what I, what I mean by node is it's simply a server, a computer, or a laptop that's running the full wallet or the version of the blockchain. Now the cool part is when that happens and it's spread, so thousands of people across the world download one of these wallets, they have an identical copy of all the information that has ever been contained in that blockchain. Now the cool part is, is they don't really know what it is, where it came from, or who it is, but it's, it, it mimics DNA in that way. Now once you have this decentralized network that's spread all over the world, that's outside of the control of any government, any company, any centralized organization, is you can start doing a lot of cool things for privacy and data security. Um, so just a quick comparison, I, I'm not here to sell you a cryptocurrency. Um, if you wanna find out more about Digibyte, you can go to digibyte.io. But we have done a lot of things that have actually dramatically improved the security, the speed, and the decentralization of the Digibyte network compared to other leading blockchains out there. Um, now I will tell you, uh, if you go online and you Google blockchain, uh, it's, it's an absolute chaotic mess. Uh, there's hundreds of different blockchains. A lot of them aren't even really blockchains. Uh, so you know, really be aware. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of uh, fraud and scams from the financial aspect. So just you know, keep that as a heads up. Um, but one of the things I like to talk about when you're looking at the overall blockchain industry is imagine a tree. And the core trunk of this tree is built on the original, um, what started out as the Bitcoin core code, um, but there's a handful of projects, uh, Bitcoin, Litecoin, Digibyte, um, that have kind of steered, you know, stayed close to this uh, because it, was the, the, it has the most research, the most development, and uh, the best developer talent. And it's been the most battle-hardened. Uh, you know, or it's, it's been in existence for over 10 years now. Uh, now from that, you have all these branches of all these other ideas and projects uh, where you get into ICOs, um, different things like proof of stake, uh, proof of heart, you know, there's, it, it goes on and on and on. I don't want to like go into too many technical details here. Uh, but the one important thing to note is it's an absolutely amazing time uh, to be in computer science because uh, the, the new ideas, ingenuity, innovation is just happening at a very, very accelerated pace.
Um, and this is why I believe without a doubt, it's going to impact every day, you know, every part of our lives by the year 2035. Um, one quick thing we did, uh, Digibyte has five independent mining algorithms. Um, it gives us uh, basically a much stronger security backbone to stand on. Um, I don't want to go into too much technical detail, but uh, you can find out more about it. With Digibyte, there'll be 21 billion Digibytes in 21 years. Uh, and that's to make it and give it a one to a thousand ratio with Bitcoin. So there will only be 21 million Bitcoins ever created. Um, so it's, it's a very limited um, uh, asset. Uh, and to be honest, um, you know, a lot of people tend to think like how many people when they first heard about Bitcoin thought it had to do with going online and buying drugs? All right. So a few people. Uh, the reality is in this day and age, it's actually not a very good use case as a currency. Uh, because of the fluctuation, and I think it's pretty well proven that that's the case over the last uh, five, ten years. It is, however, a very good store of value uh, because it's backed. It's backed by the laws of mathematics, uh, and to me, uh, that seems to be the ultimate uh, uh, kind of source of truth. Um, so, one of the things to think about it's like, okay, if we're going to fix these cybersecurity vulnerabilities in the internet, how are we going to do it? How? What is? What kind of architecture stack is this going to look like? So. If you take uh, the Digibyte blockchain or the Bitcoin blockchain or the Ethereum blockchain, I like to describe it as an Oreo. So at the very basic level, uh, the core protocol level, uh, is basically a communications protocol where you have all these nodes that are all over the world or you know servers running the software communicating with each other. Uh, and if there is no centralized source of you know truth or control, um, you can do some pretty cool stuff. Now, how do you incentivize people to run these servers and these nodes? That's where what we call the digital asset layer comes in. And that digital asset layer is where uh, Digibyte is a digital asset or Bitcoin is a digital asset comes in. Now, the really fascinating part is when you have that in place, you can start building some really cool technology on top of it. Um, and that's where we call the applications layer. So one of the things... Uh, that we're actually working on right now with Digibyte is we have created what we're calling the Digi Assets uh, Protocol. Uh, and that protocol sits on top of our core protocol, uh, very similar to how uh, HTTP sits on top of TCPIP. So for those of you that aren't aware, TCPIP is the fundamental kind of communication that was developed uh, by the Department of Defense in the 60s. Um, for communication between institutions, military bases. Well, it was very limited in its scope. Uh, you could send data packets back and forth. But then some people came up with this idea for something called HTTP, uh, which is basically the foundation for when you go to your website and it says HTTP or hopefully HTTPS uh, for the security socket layer. Um, that's how basically the internet we know it today functions. So what we're doing with DigiAssets is you have the ability to basically turn anything of value in the real world into a cryptographically backed asset on a blockchain. So that could be something as simple as a will or a contract or a deed um, or a title to a property. It could be your healthcare records, uh, cryptographically sealed, so only you could basically um, and, you know, work with them and see them, or your physician. You don't have to have eight different parties in the middle of seeing it. Um, it could be tickets to a concert. Um, you, know, you can help prevent uh, ticket scalping. Um, it could be a number of different things, uh, photos. Uh, it could also be IoT data, IoT sensors. Um, so there's a lot of cool things. Uh, one of the other things, um, because 
One of, one of the things I like to say about blockchain technology, it, it's very much misunderstood because it's really a summation and a combination of the last, you know, uh, 60 years of, of mathematical cryptographic work, uh, a lot of which has been done by governments. Um, and the way it all comes together is really kind of what makes a blockchain work. And one of the things you can do um, with a blockchain, and so just like when you have a wallet and you have some private keys, you can actually use that to replace passwords. So how many people in here have ever forgotten a password? Had to have a reset, right? Well, you know, there's a system out there that exists today that's actually more secure and it can actually help uh, uh, fix that problem. So some of these solutions have already been developed. In fact, digiid.io, uh, there's a browser extension you can start using today on Chrome. Uh, and this technology has been looked at uh, by numerous European governments, especially following GDPR. Um, so this is, you know, this, this technology is in the real world uh, and it's happening. Uh, one of the solutions I helped develop out of Hong Kong uh, was an international trade and logistics uh, uh, supply chain system where we basically were able to, uh, you know, secure the documentation and shipments from factories coming throughout Asia all the way to the United States uh, retail sales floor um, that helps streamline a lot of efficiency. So uh, once again, I only have a limited amount of time, so I don't want to go into too many details. Um, but if you want to learn more, go to digibyte.io, invite you to check it out. Uh, we're very active on Twitter, social media. Uh, but uh, yeah, now we kind of wanted to go, um, that's a little bit about my background uh, to blockchain. Uh, now the book itself, um, you know, over the last seven years, I've probably been asked, you know, by 10,000 people, often the same questions. So uh, when I had the ability to sit down and talk with Andrew for quite some time, we're like, hey, we should get this out in a book because the biggest problem this industry has right now is education. So that's our purpose for writing a book. So the book's been split into four parts. Uh, part one is the basics, which is the introduction of our story. Andrew and I have actually known each other since we were three. Um, so we go back a ways. Um, where we actually go in and we try and break down the basics of blockchain in a more uh, you know, easy to understand uh, you know, terminology and format. Uh, part two is the philosophy, where we get into, uh, we start off with, like I say, blockchain is really an evolution of applied cryptography. Uh, and that's why it's severely misunderstood. Uh, and it, it needs much more attention, especially at the policymaker and, and government levels. Um, we talk about uh, some pretty uh, advanced intellectual stuff. Uh, and we even get into uh, blockchain being a solution to keep us all from, uh, you know, being murdered by future AI robots. Uh, so blockchain is actually a solution for that. So uh, part two, uh, we actually go, or part three, we do a survey of existing protocols, kind of help uh, breaking, you know, break through the fluff and the confusion in the industry. Uh, and then part four, we talk about the future. Where is this all going? How is this going to be implemented? How is this going to affect uh, geopolicy? How is it going to affect... Uh, uh, a lot of different things. So um, if you take anything away from today, um, what I really kind of want to get across is just four main points. Uh, blockchain is a paradigm shift in computer science and the way we handle data and networks. Um, it mimics the natural data structures that we see all around us. And it, it's the evolution of 60 years of applied cryptographic technologies, many of which predate the internet and weren't even fully understood or used until the advent of blockchain. So uh, it really is a fundamental game changer in, in networking. Um, and by the year 2035, it's gonna be intertwined into almost every aspect of our everyday lives. So uh, with that, I'd like to turn it over to Andrew and uh, let him go.
So another uh, another popular survey. How many people in this room have either flown in a plane, wore a wristwatch, or uh, have used a map? Probably all of us, right? And to us, something like a wristwatch or a clock is mundane technology. We take it for granted. But that was not the case in the 1600s and 1700s. It was a critical problem to figure out where you were in the globe with the problem of longitude. With the sextant, people could tell how far north or south they were. They couldn't tell how far east or west. And uh, the English Parliament set up what today would be a multi-million dollar prize to solve this problem. That problem was solved by this guy, John Harrison, who invented the marine chronometer. What the marine chronometer was, was a mechanical clock, just like any clock today, that uh, allowed the user to judge from, based on the time that it was at Greenwich Mean Time, how far they were from Greenwich Mean Time, and determine how far they were from uh, whatever points they were on the map. This was a revolution, not in cryptography, but in cartography. And this is the backbone that the British Empire was built on, was one tinker from the middle of England who built this system. In a lot of ways, blockchain is that. It is a clock, it is a revolutionary technology that in the future for us will be mundane, but uh, today is revolutionary will impact dozens of fields. So that's everything from politics to cybersecurity, to social security, healthcare, civil rights, monetary policy, everything. This is a fundamental shift in computing and it'll impact all these other fields. So getting into the specific impact to modern computing, there are a lot of uh, domains that we can go through and we go through into the book that uh, we explain what kind of impact a system like this can have. So starting out, um, a lot of people have Amazon Alexa or these other systems in their houses, and it's intellectually curious why a microwave with Alexa installed is only $60 when a microwave without Alexa is $100. And to that effect, there's an incentive by a lot of these large tech companies to have endless access to all our data and, uh, in every possible way. That even goes to something like a washing machine that's uh, can gain useful insights about a customer by monitoring what kind of uh, materials in it and how much electricity it takes and everything else. And it's good for us as consumers, but that's built a world where we have 50 billion anticipated Internet of Things devices just next year. So that's a huge amount of data that's being collected and organized, and it's owned by very hierarchical, very, uh, very influential tech companies, only a few of them. Uh, Harvard professor Shoshana Zuboff calls it uh, surveillance capitalism. That uh, we have all these systems that are monitoring us and figuring out what we're going to buy and building a predictive model of us to capitalize upon, but uh, we're not really equal in this uh, in this scenario. So, with all this big data, the next question is AI. Since there's so much data, uh, almost all firms now use some form of AI, neural networks, and uh, other methods to actually organize that data, and that's important at national security level as well as a personal level and an economic level. So today's AIs are based on, they call it Markov math, they're based on the Markov chain, which is a probabilistic way of viewing data to much as if you were watching a game of chess, you would have an identifier for each chess piece. By watching what kind of moves each chess piece moves, you can figure out what its possible moves are and what its next moves might be. So that's how Google Maps works, that's how speech recognition works when I talk to Siri and ask for directions to the local coffee shop, that's what's happening and that's the math that it's based on. But this kind of uh, world is very data intensive, so it requires just huge, huge amounts of data and that's why we have giants like Apple and Google that have uh, built these giant companies to capitalize upon it. Blockchain, however, works on encryption and in that respect is a check on big tech. And that uh, by using encryption, that actually gets in the way of um, a lot of this big data that's being taken from us constantly, sometimes with our consent and sometimes without. And uh, going back to the question of AI, there are really two questions. 
there's a question present day AI looks like and what a future AI might look like. So with something like a blockchain, not only is it possible to guard data, it's also possible to manage it and have marketplaces for it in a more efficient way because that's the backbone of how these AI equations are running. But at a national security level, when these platforms are things that the country counts on, it's also a means of securing them. So unless we actually secure the AI platforms that we build today, then those are going to remain vulnerable to not only hacking, but also perversion. Imagine putting bad data into a system or alternatively, you know, stealing it or corrupting it in some sort of way. So by using strong encryption, that's a tool. When we talk about kind of the Skynet, you know, the future of what AI might look like, which right now is mostly science fiction, but the future is always getting closer. Um, why not have these sensitive systems also be mortal? Why not have a system that we can't afford to be stolen have an expiration date so that uh, if it goes haywire or it's stolen by a foreign government or some other hostile negative outcome, then it expires, that nobody has the nuclear launch codes to keep running it. So second element uh, in computing is that quantum computing is growing faster and faster now. There are multi-qubit machines now running at Google and other places. I believe Google's has uh, 72 qubits, which qubits, as opposed to traditional computing bits, uh, are able to process information in an exponentially more powerful way. So on the long end, once you have a uh, large quantum computer, cracking today's cryptography won't be a problem. What blockchain is as an experiment in cryptography is basically providing ways and helping develop ways to counter that. So in the future, it's likely that much of our uh, government and corporate uh, uses for blockchain will be in this field of distributed cryptography that can actually counter the very high power that comes out of a quantum system. Second element, so moving on from the uh, technological to uh, also the geopolitical and the strategic, there's uh, blockchain is the next era of financial warfare. So. As Jerry talked about before, um, Satoshi's uh, Genesis block, banks on the brink of failure. Bitcoin originated as a response to fiat currency and to the financial crash of 2008. And it's impossible to read it apart from that. So um, in those terms, Bitcoin and other digital assets are a counter at a strategic level to what today is fiat currency. So fiat currency is a product of uh, literally hundreds of years of evolution. So central banking started in the 1600s and took several years just from inception to the formation of the Riksbank, the Bank of England and other central banks, which gave in this post-Westphalian order where the, these newly found states weren't just feudal anymore, they were institutional. It gave a means to print money and issue bonds and borrow money in order to compete with each other. And this was actually a evolutionary process for most states that the states that could print money enough and borrow enough money had a huge advantage in warfare, competition and trade wars. So in that system though, we end up with, uh, since fiat currency is now not backed by anything, we've gone from uh, being partially backed by gold and partially constrained to unbacked and printable ad nauseum. Here are two quotes from uh, former Fed Chair Alan Greenspan that kind of illustrate this drift. And just in our own lifetimes, the uh, nature and notion of currency has evolved. So Greenspan in 1966, literally five years before uh, the gold standard was obliterated, Deficit spending is simply a scheme for the confiscation of wealth. Gold stands in the way of this insidious process. It stands as a protector of property rights. If one grasps this, one has no difficulty in understanding the status antagonism towards the gold standard. That's Greenspan in 66. Greenspan in 2011, after the financial crisis. The United States can pay any debt because we can always print money to do that. So there's zero probability of default. In this world where fiat currency and states can be, well, states can use fiat currency to basically print and spend ad nauseum, 
that changes our politics. There's no way to avoid that. That changes our way that we think about future generations. It changes how we think about taxation. There are several knock-on effects that maybe weren't considered, even as well-meaning or as strategic as the original evolution of fiat currency was. There will be impacts, and we're seeing impacts today of how this system works. So, and to quote another great figure, uh, this is Ray Dalio, who's the most successful hedge fund manager in American history, who recently released a book, uh, Principles for Navigating Big Debt Crisis, which everybody should read. And we go into it a lot in the book, but most of what people think is money is really credit. And credit appears out of thin air during good times and then disappears during bad times. And when we go through these financial crises, that's really a credit crunch, that's money that is owed, but it's not necessarily being uh, able to be paid back, and that echoes across the entire economy. Dalio has a 30-minute video on YouTube anybody can watch. It's the most uh, watched economics video on YouTube that explains uh, big debt cycles. Effectively, the fiat system is built around banks issuing money, and issuing money not as money, but as debt. And that has driven up asset prices in several parts of the world. That's why it's so difficult for young people to afford a house. That's why stocks and other equities have been driven up because there's so many new dollars chasing not as many new assets. And really, you can talk about the movement from industrial capitalism focused on production to financial capitalism focused on debt and asset trading. This happened over the last 40 years as a knock-on effect of that. So really, this has put us in a perverse situation as a country. Like right now, there are 21, excuse me, $210 trillion of unfunded liabilities. That is no small figure. That's Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, all those guarantees that are politically locked in, those are effectively a ticking time bomb that somebody's going to want to cash out in the future because they built that expense into their life. And just of what we've spent already, the United States is $22.2 trillion in debt today. And just in the time it took us to write this book, the national debt has gone up $700 billion, roughly. That is absolutely insane. Anybody who doesn't think that is insane is insane. <laughs> and this is happening at a time when wages are stagnant across much of the Western world, and it's causing huge amounts of political division. Like I mentioned, not just in home buying, but uh, in student debt. We have $1.5 trillion of student debt outstanding now with massive default rates. It's unsustainable. In a world based entirely on debt, it causes negative political impacts. So just to close out here, so across this entire system, what Bitcoin is and what uh, cryptocurrencies are is a non-dilutable asset. There will never be, like Jared said, never more than 21 million Bitcoin. That's not enough for everybody in New York. Um, in a world of now 7.5 trillion people, that's not enough for everybody. And the same goes for every true UTXO blockchain, is that uh, with a few very small exceptions, they are deflationary assets. They're not necessarily money, but they're a way of preventing, uh, preventing assets from being diluted away ad nauseum. And in a situation like this, the policy options for addressing it are narrower and narrower. So once we have so much debt, we can't raise interest rates anymore because that would crush us with uh, interest rate payments. So the only option to go to is quantitative easing, is to basically print the money and either distribute it through banks and drive up asset prices, or distribute it politically through something like universal basic income or what some economists call helicopter money. And that's, again, more money chasing the same number or just only a few more goods. And uh, hyperinflation is still a possibility in that kind of world. We haven't seen it because we have the most successful global empire at the time. And you know, thankfully, the US dollar still works. But there is geopolitical and strategic exposure that comes out of that kind of system.
So that moves into the question of geoeconomics. So geoeconomics sounds like a huge word. Really, it's just geopolitics and economics together. So geoeconomics is effectively the competition between states for economic power, very simply put. And right now, it's very much the competition between the United States, the European Union, China, and a few other large players for not only financial power, but also productive capacity. Who gets to build the windmills? Because the world can only absorb so many windmills at once, so many products at once. That's, uh, it's a competition over who has that productive capacity. So, and that occurs, again, in an insecure internet. So today's insecure internet, it's not just an internet of things, there's an internet of theft. So Chinese and other adversaries have used the openness of the American internet to rob the United States blind. So just for a dated statistic, so this is coming from 2012, so most of a decade ago, 15% of online daily traffic was tied to cybercrime or estimated to be tied to cybercrime. On Chinese federal holidays, that figure dropped by over half. So dropping from 15% to 6.5% on uh, Chinese national holidays. That's insane. Not only is it state-driven, but it's a massive impact. Mm -hmm. And today, that estimate is, according to the NSA and other public figures, that's roughly $600 billion a year, between $450 and $600 billion a year stolen. And that's compounding. So if you've stolen enough technology to build most of an iPhone, you can probably figure out the you know, extra bits and corners. So that's a massive transfer of value over time. And it's happened because we have an insecure internet, partially, and because it's so easy to steal products. Because they're either A, not encrypted, or they're not managed properly. So, and that's where blockchain comes in. Unless we adopt the strong cryptography that blockchains are able to run, then we're leaving our flank open in almost every possible way. Fundamentally, blockchain is a defensive, not an offensive technology. And unless we, as the United States, start to adopt it as such and treat it as such, we're likely going to continue to be exposed, not just to the big tech firms that are centralizing our data and collecting it, but also to uh, all the other possible vectors that could happen. My own identity has been stolen in the OPM hack. And not just that, but dozens of other hacks. And that's because our data is taken very greedily and then not guarded very greedily. So this is a better approach. So, and this is existing in a world of sovereign internets. So, if you go to Russia or China today, there are internets that are run from the top down and have, you know, the Great Firewall of China or the Russian sovereign internet. They have their own domestic companies that uh, not only compete with U.S. companies, they're a replacement for U.S. companies. You don't have Twitter in China, you have Weibo, you have WeChat, you have all these other tools that... Uh, it's not going to be a U.S. company in a lot of these places. It's going to be a Chinese or Russian or a, you know, even a European company that gets to have that market share. And part of that is governance. Like, whoever owns the data and owns the ability to run social media and these other platforms has the ability to spread their message. And things like Facebook, Instagram, they might be accepted in some degrees, but they're a political threat in some, in some uh, areas as well. So this is ultimately the new geopolitical competition, not just for dirt, but for control of the internet. And we have a mostly open internet in the US which doesn't uh, match up with our, uh, our adversary strategies now. So just mentioned how it's a defensive tool. Now this is on the long end how blockchain could be used in an offensive way. So I already mentioned that uh, our fiat currency today has created a world that is at least inclined towards hyperinflation or at least inclined towards uh, fragility that uh, you have all these sovereign countries, and the United States is not alone, most of Europe has done this too, have racked up huge amounts of sovereign debt, mostly for entitlements programs now, as well as defense spending and everything else. 
and their financial flexibility has been significantly impinged by that. Nobody is prepared for a geopolitical conflagration or you know, the degree of competition that uh, existed previously now that we're all so in debt. So on offense, that, since that is a vulnerability, some countries are exploring quietly the possibility of using blockchain in an offensive way, basically trying to provide an asset class and provide a nationally backed, uh, some people would call it a Fed coin, but uh, a nationally backed form of cryptocurrency that's used to say, settle oil or other, uh, other financial transactions that completely circumvents the United States' financial primacy and sanctions and elsewhere. And if that's successful, that's a massive impact. Imagine, you know, for example, oil not being denominated in U.S. dollars anymore. That's a lot of U.S. dollars that have to go somewhere to, uh, you know, chase some sort of asset. So this uh, this can have a very quick autocatalytic effect if it's pulled off in, you know, the uh, most aggressive way. The best example of this today is in Venezuela. So Venezuela, in order to get around U.S. sanctions, released something called Petromonita or Petro which uh, for them, the way it was branded, which obviously not the way it was executed, was as a way of uh, denominating transactions for oil in a cryptocurrency and not in a traditional fiat currency controlled by the West or controlled by banks. And uh, it obviously failed because the Venezuelans tried it and uh, they did not execute properly and they did, it wasn't technically pure and it wasn't trustworthy. And uh, US sanctions did manage to hold it back but the thing is, Petro was not just about Venezuela. It originally started with uh, advice from not only the Russians, but also, I believe, potentially, and this is less, uh, less well-documented as the Russian connection, with the uh, Chinese. In fact, you could only buy Petro with rubles, and I believe uh, renminbi at one point. And obviously, the project collapsed, but uh, if this works in a small country, in a small hot zone like Venezuela, imagine the impact of a first-tier global nation actually moving to a form of cryptocurrency or a parallel asset to their fiat currency as a strategic move. Because like Jared said, we can trust the math. We don't have to trust anything other than a math. And when a country turns a real UTXO blockchain to, uh, to its strategic end, that's a big long tail event. And that's an eventuality really. Eventually greater experiments in this are going to happen. So anyway, as a summary, blockchain is probably, at least in my opinion and Jared's opinion, the, one of the most important strategic uh, technologies that we will see in the early 21st century. And it cuts to the core of everything, not just from cybersecurity or value, but to the core way we architect the internet and the central nervous system of our entire civilization. And unless we can approach that in a serious way and uh, appreciate it for what it really is, we're probably going to be blindsided in the future. If we don't, uh, and when blockchain started, many ignored it, many uh, kind of poo-pooed it as something that was just an experiment or a scam, but today it's established enough for us to know with a reasonable degree of certainty what the potential is, at least in broad terms. That's the purpose of this book. And unless we take it seriously, the innovation will happen in places like Shenzhen and Novogorod, not here in the United States. So this is the cover to our book. So um, you can buy the book at uh, blockchain2035.com. We're uh, doing a pre-release right now. There's also a discount code. So uh, we're hoping to have it printed by the end of May and uh, shipped out. And uh, we also do some uh, consulting on the side and you can reach us at uh, info at blockchain2035.com. So uh, after that, uh, it's uh, me and Jared for some questions. Yeah, we'd love to answer. Yes, sir. Uh, my name is Femi. My question is that currently the Chinese currency 
has been accepted by the IMF. If we look at the statement from Crispin in 2011 that we could print as much money as we want, if the U.S. is now have to adjust herself to the global monetary scheme that can print money completely, what are the consequences for that for the U.S. and the rest of the global economy? And my second question is, I think the cryptocurrency is going to eventually be used by a group that are overly discriminated against, i.e. in the U.S., maybe the gay community, and maybe in the global sea, maybe the African continent. And I think that's where I think this kind of thing, I like your thoughts on those two issues. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. I believe you're referring to like the special drawing rights basket, uh, if I understand correctly, the renminbi uh, being included in that. Um, you know, is from my understanding uh, in studies, um, you know, the, the the advent of the special drawing rights was kind of uh, thought up as a replacement to the U.S. dollar as the world's central you know, or reserve currency. Um, uh, the problem there is it's still an inflationary-based system. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't realize uh, that the U.S. dollar's currency has effectively been reinvented five times uh, in the last hundred years. And what I mean by that is the way that the U.S. dollar has effectively functioned has dramatically changed. Uh, first in 1913 with the advent of the Federal Reserve, uh, then again at the end of World War II uh, with the Bretton Woods Conference where the world basically went from the British pound sterling as the world's reserve currency to the U.S. dollar. Uh, again in, was it 78 uh, when we went off the gold standard? 71. Or 71, 72, or Kissinger when we went off the gold standard um, and we went into an inflationary uh, uh, currency. Um, in the 90s, you know, we had the emergence of derivative markets, etc. And then effectively in 2008, 9, uh, our currency fundamentally changed, you know, with this whole advent of quantitative easing. We're just going to print our way out of, you know, uh, debt. Um, so the way the U.S. dollar has functioned uh, has fundamentally changed. So the entire world, uh, especially you know, emerging markets, emerging countries, has followed the U.S.'s leadership uh, in financial, I guess, economic theory. And, it, and in a way, it's kind of uh, scary because the entire world is now experimenting with a system that is not even a decade old, uh, you know, so in this particular case. So I don't believe personally it's sustainable. Um, and that's why I was first motivated and got involved with cryptocurrency. You know, when you have a system like a cryptocurrency that you can basically get in there, see the code, see the uh, economics, see how everything's defined, uh, and somebody just can't get in there and willy-nilly change the structure. I think long-term that's a more viable, you know, structure. Um, you know, in regards to your second question. Uh, I think this ties into what I like to call the balkanization of the internet. Um, so, you know, I, I've had the, the, the experience and privilege of speaking at different places around the world. Uh, I've spoken in Beijing, South Africa, uh, a few other places in Europe. And, uh, you know, when I was in, in Beijing in 2016 uh, at a blockchain conference, what amazed me was that they're giving a slide deck and a presentation talking about how the UK government made blockchain technology in 2016 a top priority of national security. Uh, and basically, effectively trying to recreate the former British Empire via you know, digital asset strategy, right? Uh, but the Chinese were actually, you know, the One Belt, One Road initiative, uh, were actually looking at this technology as a tool of expansion of One Belt, One Road. Um, so I think, um, I, I don't really think 
people are going to discriminate per se. I think it's really a battle of who comes out with the blockchain that ends up taking over. Uh, and I don't think it's going to be just one. I think there's going to be multiple. Uh, but I really do think that is kind of the uh, fundamental coming, you know, uh, battleground. So that's, that's a very good question. You want to? Uh, yeah, just to speak to the civil rights side, like uh, if you don't control or have any control over value or money that you created originally, then you don't really have a means of keeping that. And I mean, we typically acknowledge as a human right the ability to keep your money, to keep your value, assuming you've done nothing wrong. And in a fiat system that doesn't work as well when we're relying on banks and you know fintech and other massive groups, not not to say anybody's ill-intentioned, but uh, nobody has control over the value. In a way, like uh, Bitcoin, Digibyte, other real cryptocurrencies are superior to gold in that you can own them personally. They're in your wallet, associated with your keys. Nobody can take them from you. Nobody can confiscate it. And you have the freedom to transact in a peer-to-peer -peer way without relying on central powers that can take your rights from you. In a way, it's a very libertarian, very freeing idea. So, uh, next question. Uh, my name is Marcus. I have a question. Like, with all the other currencies and banks, we have the central bank to regulate. What is about blockchain? What is the either regulator or who kind of ensures that nobody kind of... So you're talking about the idea of, of government governance or like the economic theory that goes right so uh, in a lot of cases like in the case of Bitcoin in the case of Digibyte that was predetermined um, so that happened so in the case of Bitcoin um, so every 10 minutes there's a Bitcoin block that comes into circulation and with that Bitcoin block there's new Bitcoins that are minted um, and this is basically determined by what we call a consensus protocol that's backed by some of the most advanced cryptography and mathematics ever invented. And that's how we can trust and rely on it. Because if you download a Bitcoin wallet right now, if you could hack that mathematics, which when you create like a Bitcoin address uh, and the private key that backs that, uh, it's the same prob probability as the number of uh, known atoms in the universe. So. Uh, fundamentally, it's it, at this point in the time, it's, it's, it's impossible to hack. Um, but if you could hack it, you would literally instantly have access to, what, $260 billion? Because you literally could uncover Bitcoins one by one and siphon them and sell them off. Uh, so it, at this point, that hasn't happened. Um, now, the original supply, the $21 million, uh, was created to mimic the natural mathematical scarcity of gold. And that was actually where uh, Satoshi, which... For those who don't know Satoshi, he's a, nobody knows who he is, um, but at this point, that's the math that he used to basically uh, create the first supply. Uh, with Digibyte, we chose to mimic, mimic that, uh, but multiply it with a one to a thousand ratio, uh, because obviously, you know, going to sell or buy 0.0001 of a Bitcoin is confusing to people, first, um, but you know, that's part of it. So to make changes to that is actually a very contentious, uh, and it's actually one of the problems with the technology right now, because you can't just flip a switch and make a change. You have to have all these people agree. And so far, uh, that's happened on a few occasions and not happened on a few occasions. Um, for those that may not be aware, uh, there was a very contentious change to the Bitcoin protocol in 2017 um, that actually led to the fork and creation of what we call Bitcoin Cash today, which that also proceeded to fork. And so it's, uh, it's kind of been an interesting place. There's actually a lot of interesting research, and this is what we call uh, governance or blockchain governments. And so there's uh, some very interesting approaches. Uh, one project in particular is Decred, 
Um, if you want to know more, check that out. But there are there's this notion in the blockchain community that it's possible to create kind of a, a blockchain-based democracy. And that's actually, you know, blockchain technology for voting is actually an interesting use case uh, to say, hey, this person's vote really did count and it really did come from them. So uh, there's some very fascinating things. But uh, yeah, long story short, um, blockchain technology, blockchain exchanges, some of this stuff uh, is definitely using some of the most advanced uh, mathematical cryptography and security features, much more so than your average bank in a lot of cases. So, uh, yes. Just a quick question. Uh, uh, if I'm not wrong, Bitcoin was banned in China, right? Uh, you know, <laughs> according to Western media, Bitcoin's been banned like a dozen times in China. Um, so what, what is the status, current status? Uh, you know, I, I can't actually speak to that directly. I can say that they just came out with like they were trying to shut down large mining operations. Because uh, what happened over the last couple years is there was a heavy centralization of Bitcoin mining because the largest Bitcoin miner manufacturers is located in China. Um, but they were using a lot of power and uh, it was, I guess, inefficient and they wanted to shut that down. Um, in 2017, uh, there was a flat out ban on um, ICOs, which were initial crypto offerings. Um, but as far as I know, it's not directly illegal, but it just kind of depends. So um, it, it's kind of been a gray area. I mean, um, you know, it seems like most countries around the world have banned it, unbanned it, rebanned it, and it, it just kind of gets, you know, the, the translation between uh, languages and press tend to be a little deceiving. But uh, I also think one of the things that's happened, uh, and I think this has actually happened with the, with the U.S. government, is, you know, People don't understand this technology initially, so their first instinct is to just you know squash it, ban it, because uh, they're like, oh, you know, terrorist financing, drug dealing, and uh, but then they realize, oh wait, there's a lot of other benefits. Maybe we should hold back. So, I don't know if you wanted to. Uh, yeah, the question of like how governments uh, adapt to not just Bitcoin but blockchain generally. Like, I mean, we went to a meeting with the I think it was the Australian government in Austin, Texas. Uh, state of Ohio in the U.S. accepts Bitcoin for taxes. Like, uh, Paraguay and Argentina just settled a trade deal denominated in Bitcoin, not denominated in any fiat currency. Like, this is a progressive thing that's going to be adapted more. And we're only ten years in. And a lot of uh, governments are going to use it. And, you know, you might have uh, more authoritarian governments like Iran, for example, try and ban it. Iran lifted the ban recently. So it's, um, and in fact, in places like Venezuela, Iran, Bitcoin goes at a serious premium if you can even get a hold of it. So um, there's global demand for this. There's global scarcity. And uh, almost every government in the world has at least a curiosity about it, even if that curiosity is based on misconceptions. Just a follow-up question, actually. I think it is does not uh, it does not really because the country of authority or dictatorship. Uh, but another reason you have not mentioned there are many kind of criminal activities. They can actually also take the advantage of the blockchain. Mm. For example, money washing. I know it exists in these criminal activities, and you just mentioned about the positive things. Well, uh, just one interesting uh, story and experience I've had just from my own personal experience. Um, uh, I had the privilege of listening to a presentation by a former U.S. Department of Justice prosecutor uh, who actually was involved in the Silk Road case and stolen bitcoins and the whole nine yards. And he put it like this. He's like, if we have an investigation where we have to go get subpoenas from banks from every state, different countries, that process can take months. Uh, whereas the UTX, UTXO blockchain, like Bitcoin, because 
it's an immutable ledger. Everything's out there. He's like, we can just go build, boot up the server, run some analysis software, and follow these transactions. So it's actually pretty dumb on criminals' part to use Bitcoin in particular for a lot of these activities. It actually makes it easier for law enforcement. So, yes. Okay, so just a second. So you read a lot of news stories about hackers like breaking in and stealing like millions of dollars worth of uh, Bitcoin and things like that. Um, and you've talked a lot about security. How do you see those kind of things becoming less common with the adoption of, with further adoption of blockchain? Well, I think the first problem is nobody's really talking about the cybersecurity applications. Everybody's just concerned, is this going to make me rich or not? Yeah. You know, what's the next big project? And that tends to dominate a lot of the head news headlines. Uh, and quite often, all those projects uh, end up being pretty bad, you know, pretty, pretty scam. But I think what you're going to see is you're going to see all of a sudden, you know, some of these projects just start using it. And you're using an app that you've been using for a long time. Uh, no visible changes occur to the end user, but behind the scenes, all of a sudden it's more secure because there's some back-end modifications, there's some things to the app. So the problem and one of the hard things about blockchain technology, like I just went to an event uh, where we were presenting a booth next to the VR demo guys, right? So, okay, we can send a cryptographic transaction back and forth, but you know, these guys next to us have these VR headsets, you know, doing all this cool stuff, right? So blockchain technology is not a flashy technology. So uh, that is one of the hurdles, you know, if it doesn't really sell headlines to talk about, you know, some of the stuff. So I really think it's going to be um, a gradual adoption that people don't realize, um, you know, just kind of more behind the scenes. But, uh, yes? Um, jumping back to the topic of government, where do you all see the future of crypto asset regulation and do you think tokenized assets will become their own asset class in the future? A hundred percent, the future of, I believe, without a doubt, um, a lot of big players, everybody, they're making moves right now. The future of all securities offerings, hundred percent, is going to be on a blockchain. Um, it's already happening. There's already companies out there, uh, but a lot of it, you know, is waiting on policy and regulation. Um, I do believe that it will take an act of Congress uh, to really kind of clarify this, uh, because a lot of times the technology um, is being treated like a square peg in a round hole. Uh, and that's a problem. You know, I myself as a developer, uh, you know, one of the other big problems, I was talking to uh, the lady over here earlier, is there's been massive brain drain from the United States. Some of my peers, some of the brightest people I know have been forced to go to other countries because they were terrified of writing some open source code that they thought was gonna land them in jail, even though it, you know, was a cybersecurity application or something else, you know? And when you talk about a digital asset, you know, I think of my healthcare records as a digital asset. Why, when I go to the doctor, do eight different people have to have access to my data and they don't store it? Uh, I personally have, you know, been doxxed, been hacked, been sim swapped just because, you know, my my uh, status in the in the, the community, because uh, people think, oh, I can hack this guy. He's got large amounts of crypto. But what frustrates me, if I go to buy a house, uh, you know, in pretty much any county in America, my information is with on you know online and unprotected through local governments within a matter of days and hours. That needs to change. Um, so you know, it, it, there is going to be uh, a need for you know the creation of a new asset class, but it can't just be you know a simple you know square peg and round hole because. Uh, like you know, I mentioned earlier, a lot of different things can be digital assets, and that's why this is a paradigm shift. So, I don't know if you wanted to. Uh, yeah, that's good. Uh, yes. Yeah. Can you please uh, elaborate a little bit more on uh, uh, this correlation between 
uh, blockchain and cryptocurrency attractiveness and cost of power supply, uh, cost of electricity, because uh, I heard some people uh, saying that it's becoming less attractive to mine uh, because of the increasing cost of electricity. Uh, yeah, so for sure. So in this particular instance, uh, people are usually referring to Bitcoin mining because uh, Bitcoin has a single mining algorithm called SHA-256, SHA-256, which a lot of people don't realize was actually created and funded by the U.S. government, and it's a standard for NIST uh, for securing like all government communications. Um, so SHA-256 mining has the ability, and the, the entire algorithm design was designed so you could create something called an ASIC, which stands for Advanced uh, Application-Specific application Integrated Circuit, right? So what people have done, uh, more specifically Chinese mining companies, have created these ASICs uh, that are only used for mining Bitcoin, and what they are is a computer chip that can only do one thing, process SHA-256 hashes. They're, for anything else, any sort of other computing, they're basically a doorstop or a boat anchor. Um, so there was an arms race for Bitcoin for creating um, these miners. And so what's happened uh, is Chinese miners were basically able to pretty much force everybody out of business because as far as I know, they were actually subsidized uh, by the Chinese government, um, which basically made it uneconomical for any European or, or, or Western group to compete with that. But the problem there is actually the flaw in Bitcoin itself and that you're relying on a single algorithm. So one of the things we did with Digibyte, because we saw this coming five years ago, is we actually swapped it and we created a system that uses five mining algorithms. It uses much less, much, uh, and we're actually in the process of rolling one out here pretty soon uh, that we've called and we've named UdoCrypt uh, after the shapeshifter on uh, Star Trek. Uh, it's actually a cryptographic algorithm that changes itself every 10 days. So no company or country could actually build uh, mining hardware to control cryptocurrency. So one of the things a lot of people don't realize is there is state-funded uh, mining operations occurring across the globe uh, as a kind of a power play to you know, control the issuance of these decentralized currencies and a monopoly, uh, specifically with Bitcoin and, uh, and others. So um, the power argument typically comes up in a bear market uh, when obviously people overextend themselves on credit and then you know these operations go bankrupt and then as soon as the price comes back it kind of changes and everybody wants to get into mining again but uh, that to me is fixed with a technical solution on the cryptography side and the mining side so I, this gentleman right here yes sir yeah um, I'm interested in the uh, uh, in the investment banks and the securities industry. I mean, do you guys? I, I think Goldman Sachs um, had done some done some interesting things, like I think a year or so ago, around cryptocurrency. Do you guys have a particular view um, on the investment banking industry and uh, how they're adopting this? Or uh, yes, I mean, absolutely. Every major investment bank has made some pretty serious acquisitions here in the last six months, and from the conversations I've had with insiders, uh, they all believe it's the future. Um, and this is where it's going. So uh, they're not really being as public about it, but I can tell you, you know, I've had the ability to meet with a lot of these different groups over the last four or five years. I mean, I, I was meeting with some of these banks as early as 2014, uh, and they are definitely, uh, you know, looking at this because uh, there's two things that make it super attractive. Not one, the audibility uh, that make reporting easier. Um, but two, uh, you know, currently it takes uh, the T plus three, right, for a trade settlement. 
but with blockchain technology, and what, what I mean by that is um, if you sell some stock, it takes three days before you can turn around and use that money to basically rebuy it or close it out, especially on large amounts. With blockchain technology, that basically allows for real-time settlement. So you could sell something, close it out, turn around and buy something else, and that's a huge boost in economic activity in the stock market. So it's, it's absolutely happening. Yeah. Ah, yes, ma'am. Could you share with us what the uh, blockchain landscape is within cybersecurity? So there seems to be this massive rift between the traditional, you know, red and blue teams. Uh, and a lot of the cybersecurity researchers, professionals, tend to just poke fun and joke at uh, blockchain. Um, uh, I actually had an interesting encounter. I don't know, how many people have heard of Kevin Mitnick? Uh, he's <laughs> very, very famous uh, hacker. Uh, goes around talking about a lot of stuff. I had an interesting engagement with him on Twitter not too long ago. Um, and I think it's going to happen. You, you, you need to see this kind of synergy. And I really think it boils down to a lot of them just haven't taken the time to really dive deeper into it. Because um, in a lot of cases, the cryptography that's being used in some of these blockchain applications was developed sometimes 20, 30 years ago, kind of forgotten about, and has been rediscovered. Things like zero-knowledge proofs, um, uh, Schnarr signatures, uh, stuff like this that really hasn't ever found any mainstream kind of place because what happens in some of this, the things that I've seen when companies are like, hey, we need to upgrade our infrastructure, uh, they're starting to place some other upgrades, call it blockchain, market it to the decision makers and executives, and then they'll get it approved. Um, but blockchain is really basically a, a, a testing ground uh, for some of the most advanced cryptography on the planet. And there's a major incentive. Um, it's amazing, uh, you know, how many of these projects are actually have individuals that work for certain organizations as mathematicians or PhDs that are coming and getting into the blockchain world. So, uh, yes. Uh, yes. Um, so, uh, two questions. One is, how, what do you think about non-UTXO blockchain protocols like uh, Stellar, Ripple, Ether, um, compared, you know, taking over um, versus these UTXO um, protocols in financial transactions? And also, what's your opinion about private permission blockchains like Hyperledger Fabric and Arthur? Do you even consider them blockchains? Right. Uh, well, first of all, yes. I mean, tech, the technology is being taken from that, right? Um, and it's it's when I look at the, the blockchain industry, uh, first of all, I learn new things every day, even after like almost eight years. Um, but it's a spectrum. Um, now, would I say some of these projects have gone about it in the best way? No. Uh, do I really think they're secure? There's a handful of major projects out there that they claim they're on a blockchain but they're ran on 12 servers controlled by the same parties, right? So is that really a blockchain or is it a cluster database? Are there applications for it uh, within a private thing? Yes, uh, but I believe they should be anchored into a public chain for security. Um, you know, I've actually been brought in uh, and, and asked at one point to try and link every credit union in America on a blockchain. And they're like, oh, we want to have this central node that controls it all. And I'm like, well, how are you going to secure that? You know, what's the point if you can just go into this central place? Why not just set up a cluster database with, uh, you know, Redis' data management that can be thousands of times faster? Because from a computer science uh, perspective, a UTXO blockchain is very inefficient. So, yes, sir. Last question. Um, my, my, 
Yes, my question is uh, uh, from government perspective on developing blockchain. Uzbekistan, for example, as I told you before the meeting, uh, has adopted a presidential decree last year uh, on uh, developing digital economy, which legalizes uh, blockchain and cryptocurrency development. Uh, so, from your perspective, uh, well, for example, uh, they uh, they are launching initiatives on uh, developing cryptocurrency uh, uh, stock exchange, for example, and other initiatives. From your perspective, does this bring? Uh, will this bring? A real value to the economic development of the country. Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, I know there's several different countries that are trying to become the you know epicenter of this emerging technology. Uh, because as I stated earlier, you know, even myself uh, and several others I know, you know, have gone to other countries because nobody at the time was interested in the United States. So absolutely, I think the countries that are forward looking, that are on the brink, that are, you know, taking this technology seriously and implementing it, especially as a national strategy and having national discussions around it, I think are going to be ahead in the long run. Um, so yeah, I absolutely believe it's it's beneficial. So I could probably answer one more question. I know. Yes, sir. Yeah, um, thanks, appreciate you guys' comments. So, this was touched on earlier, but like there's, I'm kind of in the camp that there's lots of non-criminal reasons for privacy on the blockchain, and so you've got like CT, Schnorr, Mimblewimble, all that stuff on one side, and then a need for a public ledger on the other side, and so how do you see that playing out? Is it like a multi-chain solution, or can it all be incorporated on one chain? Uh, yeah, I don't think there's going to be a single chain that rules them all. However, I do believe there's going to be some pretty serious interoperability that emerges. Um, you know, we've already done it with uh, atomic swaps from some of the other UTXO chains. Uh, but, you know, the beautiful thing about, like, for instance, in the case of Digibyte, the Digibyte protocol that's there today has basically been recreated over five times. So as these technologies get more battle-tested and more battle-hardened, um, you're going to see other ones that kind of reach and pull and pull these different functions in. Like, we're uh, working on uh, bringing in some stuff called Dandelion right now which is basically like a Tor network that operates within the Digibyte blockchain. So you're gonna see, and that's the beautiful thing about all these, what they call altcoins, you know, to the Bitcoin maximalists, is that's actually where the real innovation in this space is actually happening right now. Uh, it's in new projects uh, that are experimenting, and then people see if it works. And sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes the blockchain fails and it gets hacked, and you know, that's that. But uh, you know, that's why I say, if you think of that, that tree, you know, the most battle-hardened chains um, that are similar, uh, like we can still pull, you know, some some commits from different researchers that are committing to Bitcoin. So I mean, what I mean by that is get get out. So uh, I don't know. If we're gonna, I guess I can do another question. Yes, sir. Uh, <laughs> 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 you mentioned that uh, blockchain could be a potential solution in case of uh, particularly the artificial intelligence takes mm -hmm. over. So how I wonder how is it can prevent us. Well, so the way I like to describe it to people is if you have this thing called AI. Oh, yes. So the question was, uh, we were talking about how can artificial intelligence be kept in check by a blockchain? You know, how do we keep AI from going rogue? Um, so the simple analogy I get is like, imagine if AI is, is running off into the you know, distance, um, it's on some rails, and those rails are blockchain. Um, but to go a little bit further, um, you'll hear, yeah, yeah, take this one. So, I mean, because uh, almost every AI is extremely data intensive, uh, right now we rely on an unsecured data system. So, like most of what's on the internet today, like Google, is leveraging the fact that you're putting all this information out there in basically their system. They're at the top of it and they're sucking up all that data and analyzing it. 
And you know the old saying, if it's free, you're the product. And uh, that's what present day AI looks like. So there are actually multiple ways that a blockchain will impact that. So assume you're encrypting your data and keeping it private or keeping it outside of the you know, traditional domains uh, of that, then you're protecting your own data from effectively an AI system. Or alternatively, let's assume you're running an AI and you want to have verified, trustworthy data with chain of acquisition to exactly where it came from. So you can actually trust the data you're getting and it's not just being thrown in like a shrimp trawler that's just pulling everything off the seafloor. So that's two ways on the you know, present day AI side. And when you talk about more autonomous systems, having ways to encrypt those systems and basically have private keys for their subsystems. So imagine like from a biological analogy, like you know, a living thing has a heartbeat and brain waves and you know, other things going on. By having specific keys for that process and being able to stop that process if it goes off those rails, that's uh, providing a way to secure it. So, we got a real world example for that. Yeah. So, uh, let's think of autonomous driving. Okay, so all, there's, all these companies are building these autonomous cars, and a lot of the plans in the future development are for embedding road sensors in the roads. Now, one of the big debates that hasn't really happened is a lot of these, uh, these and actually they're, they're being installed in some places, uh, these data sensors that are in the road that communicate with these cars aren't even encrypted. So as a hacker, you can basically go there, you can spoof that signal and cause these cars to run up and cause a pileup. And if this is an autonomous system, how do you keep that in check? Well, if you put every one of those sensors that authenticates itself with its own set of keys on a blockchain, and the car itself, you can actually trust and verify that data hasn't been tampered with. So that's, that's one way where we talk about keeping AI in check. What about AI on a smart contract? Give it a death date. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you can also give it a termination date, because one thing we go into the book is timekeeping uh, in a blockchain. And in cryptographic computer systems, keeping secure time has actually never been possible, uh, even from a computer science standpoint. Uh, one other side note is the last thing, I think we're, we're past our time here. Uh, every blockchain in existence actually dies in the year 2038, the current way they're architected, because there's a uh, uh, time bug. Uh, so if you want something interesting to go check out, uh, look out the year 2038 uh, energy overflow. Basically, all blockchain computer systems, uh, the timekeeping system inside it resets to like January 1st, 1970. But we're going to fix that by then. So. <laughs>